How y'all doing tonight? Yeah, it's good to be here. I got my little uh, uh, Christmas mug that captures the true meaning of Christmas, as you can see here. Okay, got that down. Hope you all had a good week. I've had a miserable week, just in case you're wondering. I've had, uh, yeah, I mean, you all wanted to know that, didn't you? I, I have a case of the crud, uh, and ugh, you know, that kind of ugh, cough, hack, whatever. And so I'm kind of coming out of it. I think I'm coming out of it. I hope I'm coming out of it. I pray I'm coming out of it. Uh, but I don't know if I'm coming out of it. So if I start to uh, hack and wheeze and sniffle, whatever, just you know, talk among yourselves until I, you know, I'll get through with it eventually. Uh, and, and if I am incoherent, I mean more incoherent than usual, you can blame that on the NyQuil and the DayQuil on top of one another. Uh, but there's that. <clears throat> All right. Um, I, I want to uh, finish up this series that we've been a part of for the last 10 weeks, Compassion by Command. It's been a, a, a very eye-opening uh, series for a lot of folks, and uh, it's, it's changed some lives, and we're just happy to, to, to see this. I'm very, very happy with the direction that we're going and the various ministries that you saw here. And it just, it's just about doing the kingdom, isn't it? It's just about doing the kingdom together and individually living out the reign of God. That's what it's all about. So I want to wrap this series up here uh, tonight. And I actually found a way of doing it while looping it into a Christmas theme of sorts. Because I'm just that clever. Uh, I, I want to read from Luke chapter 2. Which is, of course, the story of uh, the birth of Jesus. It's one little small segment of it. And this is after Jesus was born. It says in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 12, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. This is the sign. The sign that God has entered the world. This is the big evidence for it. There's going to be this little baby wrapped in these swaddling clothes, which just means rags, and be laying in a manger, which means a feeding trough. This is the sign that God's entered the world. You might have thought it would be a little bit more jazzy than that, but that's what we got. So I want to entitle this message, Returning to the Sacred Shh. Returning to the Sacred Shh. And I'll just let you know a little bit about why, where that's coming from. I, uh, as a little child, was confused about most things. I was a strange child. I, for example, uh, it wasn't until around fifth or sixth grade that I finally discovered it got through somehow that the Statue of Liberty wasn't a statue of a lady named Liberty. I just thought that that was the Statue of Liberty. That was her name. I didn't know it stood for freedom. I, I was kind of literal in that way. Well, this uh, kind of message comes out of my experience of the, of the nativity scene as a little Catholic boy. We had this big nativity scene in our house. And one of the magi... In those classic nativity scenes, they had the magi there and the shepherds, even though they probably were about two years apart in the narrative, but they were there together. And one of the magi from the east had his hands up like this. You know, in, in the Catholic tradition, they're out there, St. Francis and all those guys are going like this. Okay, And so this one magi had his hand up like this. And I remember as a little kid looking at that, and he had it kind of in front of his mouth like this. And the other magi had, was giving a gift and had his mouth partly open. Yes. 
And so I naturally assumed that what that was about was the one magi was telling the other one, shut up. The baby's sleeping. Shh. And I don't know what age I was before I finally realized that he was kind of giving a Dominic to him, whatever that is, you know, the, the blessing. But he's kind of, but he's like, shh. It's quiet here. And in some ways, I think that's appropriate because as Greg said earlier in, in this, in, in the nativity scene, there's, there's this silence, there's this quietude. That's going to be the focus of this message. But we'll come back to that <clears throat> in a little bit. I want to start this, this kind of talk by sharing a conversation I had this week with a delightful uh, young lady. Um, whenever I shall share uh, uh, stories of, of folks, I, I alter the details and the names to, perfect, to uh, preserve their anonymity. So I'll call her Sue. That's not a real name, but I'm going to call her Sue. And Sue came to meet with me <clears throat> Because um, she is an animal rights activist. She's the head of some animal rights organizations, uh, wanting to raise awareness about animal cruelty and things of that sort. And she had given a talk somewhere or other, and someone in the crowd said, Yo, you, should, you, know, you come from uh, the Minneapolis area, you should go and talk to this pastor, because he believes that Christians should be concerned about the welfare of animals. And I do believe that. Um, I think it's our first mandate. God said, here's the deal, you're made of my image, be fruitful and multiply, and take care of the animals in the earth. It's our, it's our Magna Carta, I believe that. And so she wanted to meet with me to see if there can be some kind of an alliance formed. Is there some way that you know, uh, I could be helpful in her organization and whatever. She's a tireless worker for the welfare of animals. And so we met and uh, started having a conversation and talked about some you know, issues that maybe I could help out on. But I am an evangelist at heart. In fact, there's a few things I love more than talking to an honest, open-minded agnostic. And she had identified herself as an agnostic uh, right from the get-go. And I just love this. I love the honesty. It's so refreshing. It's, it's fun for me to be in uh, dialogue about the Christian faith with people who just you know, don't, have, don't have any beliefs um, and, but are, are somewhat open. And she seemed like an open person. So I managed before too long in this conversation to turn it around kind of towards her. And I began to ask her some questions. I said, for example, Sue, uh, you know, you you have this passion for, for, you know, to protect animals and and, and to, you know, see that they're treated uh, justly. Where does that come from? And she says, oh, I don't know, since I was a little kid, I just cared about, I empathized with animals and even insects, and I I just, you know, was concerned about their welfare. I said, yes, but, but where does that come from? What drives you here? She goes, well, you know, they, they, I just don't think that these animals are there just to satisfy our appetites. They have an intrinsic value, an intrinsic worth. And it's wrong if we don't treat them accordingly. We shouldn't just use them. They're not like tomatoes. They, they, they should be treated, get, you know, honored with the dignity that they have. And then I, I asked, okay, well, where did the dignity come from? I mean, I, I'm really with you on this. I completely agree. That they're not just there for our utilitarian purposes. But what kind of world does it presuppose to have those kind of values? Sue, so, uh, to, to say that there's good and evil, doesn't it presuppose that we live in a universe where there are real values? And we live in a universe where there really is dignity to animals and to people. And what does that say about the nature of reality? I mean, if this world is simply sort of a conglomeration of chemicals colliding into one another and chemical combustion, where's the values? 
A thunderclap or a firecrack doesn't have any value. It just is. And if everything just is, then there's no values. And yet you presuppose in your life that there are real values and you're passionate about them. And I agree with you. But doesn't that mean that the ultimate nature of reality that has brought us forth is one that has values and moral principles? Where else did the good and evil come from? I'm just asking these kind of questions. And then I asked her, Sue, what, what gives you strength to go on? I mean, you're so tireless. You work 24-7 about this. And she had shared this with me, that she just, you know, there's no off button when it comes to uh, animal rights. And she can't quite get it out of her mind. And she just goes on and perseveres. She, she, she says it's like running a marathon. And I said, where do you go for strength? Because you're always putting out and you're always giving and, and, and investing. But where do you go to derive strength for your own life? If you don't believe there's anything above you that can give you life, you're always giving, but where's the input here? And I can tell that you're tired, and she was. And then I said, and what are you working for? You say that you feel like you're running a marathon. In fact, you said this is the purpose of your life, is to run this marathon and to be a crusader for animal rights, and I so respect you for that. But how do you have a purpose in a world that is without purpose? Doesn't having a purpose mean that there's a purposer? Someone who infers the, confers this purpose on you? And how do you run a marathon unless you know that there's an end game, there's a finish line? I've run some marathons, and I can't imagine running one unless I knew there was a finish line. What is the goal here? Because, see, if the universe is simply this conglomeration of chemicals colliding in with one another, and it's all just a matter of complex chemical combustion, well, then there really is no purpose, and there is no achievable end. In fact... If matter is all that is, then the one thing we know about matter is that it runs out, usable energy runs out, and the universe will die this heat death, and everything will be in a state of equilibrium, which is equivalent to nothingness. And so if that is the end game, then it doesn't matter whether you were uh, for animal rights or against animal rights, whether you were kind to animals or cruel to animals, whether you treated people with dignity or, or, or an Adolf Hitler, it doesn't make any difference at all. And yet you're running this marathon, doesn't it presuppose that there is a purposer behind everything and an end game uh, and, and an outcome that makes a difference. At one point, she began to weep. And she said, I didn't come here to talk about this. <laughs> I said, I know. But let's just flow with it here for a little bit. She's such a precious person. I just love her. Uh, and, uh, you know, I could tell she was tired and she began to weep and she goes, I, 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 I just feel so tired. I, I am tired, and uh, I, you know I, I wish I could believe. I said, it seems to me that you're shouldering the responsibility of all the suffering in the world because you don't have anyone whose shoulders are bigger than yours. Do you, can you ever take a break? Can you ever take a rest? Do you ever, can you ever have fun and, and, and just enjoy life? And she admitted that she really couldn't. She has a, great, a lot of trouble just relaxing. Because there's always suffering around her. She went out for a little walk around the lake, but she sees fishermen out there, and that bothers her because she's thinking about the fish. And she can't turn it off. And she, How in a world full of suffering do you find a center of serenity and peace if you don't have anyone whose shoulders are bigger than yours that you can put it on? And I shared with her, I said, you know, I, I really so respect your, your intuitions about the, the inherent worth of animals, and I agree with you on that. I so respect your passion and your investment on this. But see, I b believe I have a purpose, uh, like you do, but I think I have a worldview where it makes sense to have a purpose because I believe in an eternal purposer. 
And I hold the same values as you hold, at least in this respect, but I have a worldview that makes sense out of that because I believe there's a supreme valuer. Uh, the ultimate reality is a personal God who's got moral principles, and our job is to participate uh, with Him in furthering good and coming against evil. Uh, it makes sense in, in that kind of a worldview. And I believe there is an end game. I don't know how. I said, I respect you for running a marathon when you don't even know if there's a finish line. But how great it would be if you could believe in a finish line. You see, I, I, I invest myself passionately in the work that I'm called to do and furthering what Jesus called the kingdom of God. And, and it involves some of what you do about caring with animals and some other things. But what motivates me to do that is that I am confident that God wins in the end. And so my actions are not meaningless. They have eternal value. Everything I do that's consistent with His character remains forever and it moves the world in that direction. I don't know how you do it. But what I really don't understand is how, how you go on. Uh, and I admire you for this. But uh, how you go on day in and day out 24-7 carrying this burden that you carry. Thinking it's your responsibility to, to save the animals. Uh, and you don't have any, anyone whose shoulders are bigger than yours to put them on. Because see, the way I do life is this. I, I, am, I also am aware. And there are people like, 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 like Sue and myself and many others who just are constantly aware of all that needs to be done and all the problems in the world and all the poverty in the world and all the suffering in the world. Animals, humans, it's just endless. And if I go to bed with that, it crushes me. It smothers me. I can't shoulder that. I'll become cynical and judgmental. And I said, and here's my worry about you, Sue, is that you have such a good heart, such good intuitions. And you're running valiantly this marathon, but I can't imagine you going on, what will it be when you're 40 or 50, unless you have a hope, and unless you have a source that's greater than yourself. I said, the way I survive is by having, in the midst of this busy world where I'm passionately engaging in stuff, I, ha I carve out time where I just sit, and I let, the, my, I let God, my Creator, pour life into me and tell me what he thinks about me. And he's expressed what he thinks about me on Calvary. That's what the message of Jesus is all about. It tells me the truth about God and the truth about who I am. And I just drink of this well of infinite worth and infinite purpose and infinite security and infinite love. And that's what fuels me to go on day after day after day. And, and I, I said, Sue, so how you need this. I, I, I wish there's some way I could help bring you in on the inside of this. To see that you're never alone in this. You don't need to be alone. Your striving is good, but to do it alone, it's going to crush you. And, and you got to know that there's a God who appreciates what you're doing, but He loves you, and He cares about you, and He's always with you. And how you need to have this hope before you that what you're doing, what you're doing makes an eternal difference. It doesn't just end up in a, in a cold heat death. And how you need a worldview that makes sense out of, out of all your intuitions. That, that ultimate reality is like you, a personal being. But most of all, Sue, how you need to know that you have got a worth and a value that isn't based on all the good that you're doing for animals. You have a worth and a value that's based on nothing other than that fact that you are you. And you're created by a God who loves you more than you could possibly ever imagine. And, and just like you, you say that you value animals a, a, as an end in and of themselves, not just for, for, for how they can satisfy our taste buds. Well, how much more do you have intrinsic worth? But the trouble is, you know, the animals have you to ascribe worth to them. Who do you have to ascribe worth to you? Ultimate worth. 
And I'm here to tell you that you're made in the image of God. And he just would love to have you climb up on his lap and rest a little bit. And he wants you to enjoy life. Yes, be an activist, but make time just to drink deeply of the source of life that he created you to drink from. And it's okay to have fun once in a while. He wants you to have fun. He wants you to enjoy yourself. Don't be defined by what you're doing and all your crusading. You, you have value in and of yourself. It was a kingdom moment. It was just, I, I just, I was so excited. It made my day. Being able to have this dialogue with her. And she again said, I didn't come here to talk about this. But she was glad about it. I mean, it was, in fact, she wrote me later on and, and just said that it's got her thinking. And I just pray that, that someday she'll, she'll uh, come to faith. Some seeds were planted there. And you can tell sometimes when you plant seeds and it seems like it's in kind of fertile ground. Uh, Pray for her. Her name's not Sue, but God knows her name, and uh, he'll apply it uh, diligently. I want to say that we're, in, this, in some ways, very much like Sue. I mean, maybe some folks listening to this message are exactly like Sue. You're an agnostic. You don't know what you believe. But even those of us who, who are in on the kingdom and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and have pledged our life for him, uh, I, I want to remind us, I want to end this series on Compassion by Command by reminding us of some of the stuff that I reminded Sue of earlier. We're called to be activists. We've talked about that a lot in the last 10 weeks. We're called to manifest the kingdom of God and to revolt against everything that's inconsistent with the kingdom of God. That's one of the themes we hit on all the time here. In the last 10 weeks, we've said, talked specifically about manifesting uh, the fullness of life that comes from Christ and therefore confronting poverty and living simply and living generously and caring about the poor. Uh, we're, we're called to put on display the values of God and uh, to love and serve people and, 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 and to live with a purpose. To live with a purpose, like Sue was living with, for, with a purpose. Everything we do, how we spend our time and how we spend our talent and how we spend our money ought to be with a purpose. We don't just ask the question, do we want it and can we afford it? But we know that our job, our, 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 the meaning of our life day in and day out is to live in accordance with this revolution that Jesus calls the kingdom of God. To live with a purpose. And it makes sense for us to live with a purpose because we believe in a purposer. And it makes sense to us to espouse his values because we believe he is the ultimate standard of value. It makes sense for us to uh, structure our lives according to the pattern of Jesus Christ because we believe that God is the ultimate creator of the world and, and Jesus Christ is the fullness of his revelation. It makes sense for us to ascribe unsurpassable worth to people because we believe in a God who ascribes unsurpassable worth and to, and, and to all others. And it, believe, it makes sense for us to treat people with dignity because we believe that every person is made in the image of God and that Jesus Christ died for them. And that our main job in life is to reflect that unsurpassable worth in ourselves and others by how we think about people, how we speak about people, how we treat people, how we live in relationship with people. So we have a coherent worldview and a very clear mandate. And we've spent the last 10 weeks looking specifically at how that gets played out in relationship to poverty. But see, if we're not careful, if we're not careful, kingdom people, we easily end up being defined by our doing, as Sue was. If we're not careful, our identity becomes reduced to what we do. If we're not careful, our Christianity can become into sort of a, just a social work sort of thing. Where God's up there and we're down here and he says, okay, here's the things that you're supposed to do and we have to just do them. If we're not careful, we can end up shouldering more than we can bear. In fact, if we're not careful, we can end up going into hopelessness. And some folks have expressed this as we showed the magnitude of poverty in the world and even in America. 
as we've showed some of the complexity of some of the problems, some folks have felt sort of a sense of despair. Like, what can I possibly do about this? And, when, and what happens with some folks when they get there is they, they say, well, look, there's nothing we can do, so forget about it. I'm just going to enjoy my nice lifestyle here. I got lucky and I'm going to cash in on my good luck. If we're not careful, we end up putting more on ourselves than we're supposed to put on. We don't put it on the shoulders of God. If we're not careful, we can fall into a state of cynicism or maybe even judgmentalism towards those who don't make the sacrifices that we make. And I want to tell us what I told Sue and remind us of the things that I uh, shared with, with, with Sue, and that is this. Number one, we, we have to always remember that we can't and we shouldn't and we're not supposed to do this on our own. Christianity is not a good deed-doer club. We're never on our own. In fact, really, we're not the ones who do it. God is the actor in history, the main actor in history, and our job is simply to align ourselves with what He is already doing. We participate in God's activity. In fact, far from being up there in heaven while we're down here on earth, the Bible says that we are the hands of Christ and the feet of Christ and the mouth of Christ and the eyes of Christ. Uh, we are the body of Christ. And so our job, far from doing it on our own with our own self-effort, our job is to yield to the Spirit of God inside of us. In fact, I'm certain that we'll never significantly swim upstream in the culture, never significantly, if we're trying to do it on our own. It just doesn't work like that. But when God comes into our life and we're truly, genuinely yielding to Him on a regular basis, then we find that there's a change of heart and a change of mind and we're transformed as the Spirit of God takes over our life. And now we begin to manifest a different kind of life and a different kind of kingdom and a different kind of way of living and a different kind of way of spending money. But it's not that we're trying to achieve something, it's rather that we're yielding to the reality of the Spirit of God inside of us. Christianity is not a good deed to our club. It's rather a, a group of people who have had their lives taken over by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We're never on our own. We're not to do this on our own. How important it is as we're closing up this series that we remind ourselves that our job is not to fix the world. You can't fix the world. No group of people can fix the world. Humanity all put together can't fix the world. The best policies in the world can't fix the world. The bombs and the bullets and the wars aren't going to fix the world. They might make little temporary improvements, but usually they actually make things worse. It's because of something called sin. And until sin is fixed, all of our sinful aspirations to fix the world usually end up just further breaking the world. We can't shoulder the world. We can't do that. Our job is not to do that. Our job is to individually and with those we are sharing community with, our job is to seek God's will on what part He would have us play in His fixing the world. Because only God can fix the world. Our honor and opportunity is that we get to participate in His doing that. But we're not the fixers, He is. Got it? Our, our job is to discern, God, what, what niche do you want me to take care of? And then with passion and gusto and sacrifice and blood and sweat and tears, pour yourself out for that niche, that area, that ministry, that thing that God calls you to. And having done your best, you leave the rest. Because you're not God. And so you put it on God's shoulders and you say, God, I rest in you. There's always more to be done. And no matter how much you do, it's simply a little dent in the giant edifice of things that need to be done. And if you're thinking in terms of utilitarian stuff or pragmatics, you'll despair. 
Our job is not to measure, to have these measurable outcomes and operate according to the pragmatic considerations. Our job is to be faithful. Be faithful. Do your best. Pour yourself out in what God calls you to do. And then, and then rest. So you don't need to be feeling guilty about every advantage that you have that the kid in Calcutta or Haiti doesn't have. You can't make the world equal and all, all just. What you're called to do is to take whatever privilege we have, and most of us have a good deal of it, and submit it to God and say, God, how would you have me steward your resources? And obey and be faithful, and then, like Jesus did, take a break and go to a wedding festival and have a little wine. Yes, it's, it's sad that a lot of people in the world don't have a chance to have wine, but you do, and, 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 and God is okay with you having that. You don't have to feel guilty about having fun. You don't have to feel guilty about every little advantage you have that someone else doesn't have. Our one consideration is, are we doing what God has called us to do? And maybe what he's going to call you to do next year isn't exactly what he called you to do this year. My wife and I find that it keeps on growing and growing and growing as our capacity grows. But right here and right now, you and those you share a community with, what is God calling you to do? Do it and then put it on God's shoulders because only he can shoulder the pain of the world. And how important it is as we become kingdom activists, living out God's justice, how important it is that we keep in mind the hope of the world. And the hope of the world isn't you, and the hope of the world isn't me, and the hope of the world isn't our righteous club, because there ain't no righteous club. The hope of the world is found in Jesus Christ. And as we're doing this activism, oh, this is what I was trying to get across to Sue, as we're doing this to know that, that in fact, it may not look like it, it may not look like it, in fact, usually it doesn't look like it, but he wins in the end, he wins in the end. And there'll come a day when there'll be no more poverty, thank God, and there'll be no more injustice, and there'll be no more oppression, and there'll be no more sexism, and there'll be no more racism, and there'll be no more disease. And, and then we'll see that every little thing we did moved the world in that direction, and that's all he ever asks of us, to move the world in that direction. Someday he'll return and finish up this whole thing. In the meantime, our job is to just do our job. But what can encourage us is if we keep a vision of that reality, that he wins in the end. Yes, we're running a marathon, and sometimes it gets pretty tiring. Thankfully, there is a finish line. And when we finish, we'll see that it, it will have all been worth it. And how important it is, probably most importantly, that in the midst of all the things that God calls us to do, we're not defined by the doing. And therefore, how important it is that we take time, disciplined time, to get aside, to get alone, and to let God pour into us. Because you can't give what you ain't got. you got to get it if you're going to give it. You can't run an engine without fuel. The fuel of the Christian life is not our good deeds. The good deeds is the running of the fuel. The fuel is the love of God and the life of God being poured into you. How crucial it is that we have times where we just sit and bask in His life. The kingdom of God is not first and foremost about confronting poverty and confronting greed and immorality and all those other kind of things. The kingdom of God is first and foremost a life. It's a new kind of life because it's a new kind of love. Because it's God invading the world in this little manger. And all the things we confront and manifest, all the manifestation of beauty and confronting of ugliness, all the activism that we do is simply what it looks like when that life comes into the world. But we don't get the life by doing the activism. Rather, we do the activism because we got the life. So the question is, are we getting the life? For some of us, it's a whole lot easier to spend time you know, working in an inner city school, which is wonderful and necessary, and, 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 and helping out with the homeless, which is wonderful and necessary. And that's easy. What's hard is taking a break 
and spending some time letting Jesus love you and having fellowship with Jesus Christ. But see, the kingdom is not just good deeds for good deeds' sake. It's good deeds to manifest a new kind of life. The kingdom of God is first and foremost about this kind of life. In fact, the truth is that you know God calls us to live, as we've seen throughout this series, we're called to live simply, and we're called to live generously. We are. But that is not just so that we'll have more money and time to invest in the lives of others. It does have that effect. But I'm convinced that the main reason God wants us to live simply and to live generously is because He wants our hearts. And He wants to be enough for us. He wants to be our all. He wants to be our everything. Because He's the only one who can satisfy the inner longings of the heart. And God knows how easy it it is for us to become little idolaters where we start filling holes in our life with this stuff. And so God calls us to live simply and to live generously to keep us free from false gods, to keep us free from stuff. It's not just for others, it's for our own sake. God wants a people, a bride, who's free to see that He is enough. Amen? He is enough. He wants a people who are free to not need the big house and to not need the extra cars and to not need the cabins and the boats and whatever else you got. He may bless you with that, but you don't need it. It's easy come, easy go. He wants a people who get all their life from Him and therefore can see through the facade of the false gods of the world. They can see the the shallowness and the emptiness and the futility and even the stupidity of chasing after the American dream, trying to acquire and acquire and acquire, running yourself ragged trying to get the bigger television or the bigger this or the bigger that. He wants a bride who's above that, who's wiser than that, because she's got real life and real love and real worth and real security coming from Christ alone, so she doesn't need this stuff. Easy come, easy go. If it's there, oh, she'll enjoy it. But she's always offering it up to him to say, if you want me to invest it, no problem, it's gone tomorrow. It's for our sake, as much as anyone else's, that he calls us to live generously and to live uh, simply. He wants a bride who knows that he is enough. So the best thing, as we're coming to the close of this this, uh, series, really the best thing we can do to help the poor, those of us who are affluent, and the best thing we can do to come up against all other forms of oppression, class oppression and race oppression in our culture and in the world, and all other forms of immorality in the world, the best thing we can do, the best thing we can do is to get a life. Get a life. Get real life. Get Zoe life. Get true life. Get the life that comes from Jesus Christ. Best thing we can do is to be a person who doesn't need the stuff of the world. To get, be a person who really has got their life and their worth and their security from Jesus Christ. Who knows your identity in Jesus Christ. The best thing you can do for the world is to take time for yourself and to just dwell with Jesus. To go on regular dates with Jesus and let Him pour His love on you. Because I tell you this, a person who takes time away from their activism to get life and worth, this is what Sue so desperately needs. This is what so many of us desperately needs. A person who takes the time to be alone with their God. And takes time in fellowship with others to enter into worship and things of that sort. That person will, over the long haul, do infinitely more than the person who's defined by their activism. A person who's got life and does activism to manifest that life will always outrun in the marathon of life, outrun the person who's trying to get life through their activism. There's a world of difference between the two. So the question is, is are you getting life from Jesus Christ? Taking time to just let Him pour Himself his love, and his worth into you. Because everything we do, everything we do, everything 
has got to be a manifestation of that. Everything else is simply a look-alike. Because the kingdom of God is not primarily activism. The kingdom of God is life. The life of God being poured into human beings. Which brings me, finally, to the manger scene. In this Advent season, we're talking about the birth of Christ, of course, and, and that centers on the manger. When God came into the world, he, he came to reveal himself, and he came to reconcile the world to himself, and he came to restore the world to be the kind of creation he always wanted the creation to be. And so he came to confront oppression and, and poverty and immorality and all sorts of other things that destroy people. He came to do all of that. And then we get to participate in that. But it's interesting that when he comes into the world, he doesn't do it with a lot of fanfare. You know, when, when, when human dignitaries show up, presidents and kings and whatnot, there's always a lot of trumpets and confetti and horns and fanfare. It's like, oh, look who's coming into the world. You, you might think God would do that. Like, it'd be like this splitting apart of the clouds and a giant head would come through and say, hey, you guys, I'm God. I'm coming down there. You know, I'm going to make things right. Get ready for me. He doesn't do that. When he comes into the world, the sign is not a bunch of fanfare, some supernatural wow. The sign is this little baby <coughs> wrapped up in these ragged clothes, sleeping in a manger, which is simply a feeding trough. That's the sign. Woohoo! Wow, is that impressive or what? He comes in this quietness. It's completely unpretentious. It's, it's only known to a couple of folks, and the folks who know about it are, 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 the, are the, low, the lowly ones. There's no dignitaries really involved. It's got a quietness to it. That's why I think the most, the, the most sacred aspect of this whole season is, is, as Greg mentioned earlier in the song, the silence of it, the quietness of it, the, the serenity of it. And so maybe in some ways my childlike misinterpretation of the Magi had a little bit of truth to it because there's a certain quality here when God comes in the world where you, you want to go, shh. It's the opposite of the fanfare and the buzz and the activism and all that. There's this very, very quiet shh quality to it. Now, earlier, I'll grant in the narrative, there was a choir of angels, but that was just to a couple of shepherds. And I have no doubt that when baby, when, when baby Jesus was being born, it wasn't all that quiet. I imagine Mary said the typical things that women do when they're giving birth to a child. And Joseph, having never seen this before, was probably freaked out of his brain. And, and it was a crowded stable. And so there's mayhem. That I'm sure is what happened. But afterwards, when Joseph is passed out and Mary's passed out and the baby's sleeping in the manger, there's silence. And there's something about the loneliness of that manger scene, the quietness of that manger scene, that I think says something very profound about God. When he comes into the world, he doesn't come with a fanfare of royalty. He comes with his sacred solitude, silence, serenity. It's got that quality to it. And see, we're called to be activists. We really are. It's a revolution. We're called to work with God to change the world. But at the center of everything, what fuels everything, is this, is this sacred shh. It's that center of serenity. And all of our life has got to be lived out of that center of serenity. Now, if you're conditioned by sort of an activist piety, you might look at that serenity and you say, uh, well, you know what? I mean, some people interpret serenity in the midst of a world that is all messed up as being apathy. There are starving kids. There are babies being murdered. There are animals that are being butchered uh, unjustly. Don't you care? How can you be peaceful in a world that is this screwed up? But see, 
if, if, if you have that, that, that kind of mindset, what it shows is that you're defining what it means to care as being anxious, striving. And I submit to you that in the kingdom, there's so much we're called to do. Aggressive, activist, sacrificial, just like Jesus. But Jesus never was anxious. There's no anxious striving. He did it out of a center of peace, out of a center of quiet, uh, uh, this, this quietness, this sacred shh. Serenity is not apathy. Serenity is caring deeply. Caring deeply. You're sharing the heart of God. But, but serenity is, is caring deeply while trusting God. Serenity is, is caring deeply while knowing that you're a mere human being and your job isn't to fix the world. Serenity is caring deeply. But it's caring while you're getting life from God and you're getting assurance from God. Serenity is caring deeply, but it's caring while you know that God wins in the end. Serenity cares. It cares deeply. It just knows what you can do and what you can do, what you're called to do and what you're not called to do. And, and, and it's proceeding forward with the confidence that you get life from the God who wins in the end. And your highest honor is to participate in his doing of that. So the question comes to this. It always... Re- in the kingdom <coughs> is about returning to the manger. We're called to be activists, but we can only do that as a way of manifesting the kingdom of God if we ourselves are returning to the shh of the manger. Do you have that quiet center, that peace that passes understanding, that center that knows where true life is found, that frees you from trying to strive to get life from any other means? Do you have space carved out in your life where you just sit and feel the worth of God towards you apart from all of your doing? Do you know what it is to just be valued for the fact that you're you, made in a radically unique way to reflect God's image in a radically unique way? Do you have that in your life? Because if you don't, you'll never be able to do the activism that God calls you to, not over the long haul, not significantly. And even if, to the extent you do it, you're not manifesting the fullness of life that God came to bring us. He came for us to have life and to have it more abundantly. The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He comes to have life and to have it more abundantly. Close your eyes for a moment here. I want to end with this. I want us to be perfectly still. In silence. And Holy Spirit, will you bring us to the serenity of the manger scene and show us what it looks like for us to have this in the core of our being as the source of all of our worth, significance, joy, and security, the Christ child. Father, teach us to always return to this center where you come into our lives as you came into the world quietly, serenely. And in that peace, you give us fullness of life. Holy Spirit, lead us, motivate us, bug us if you need to, to make time for you to just sit, to just be, to be still and know that you are God. In Jesus' name we pray.
If uh, you want to come forward for any, have any need whatsoever you'd like to have prayed for, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up, and I invite you to come forward and pray with these folks. Or if you just want to pray on your own, you can. Be still and know that God is God. Don't be defined by your doing in the hustle and bustle of the season. Take time to sit at the feet of the manger. God bless you guys. Hello, pod listeners. It's been a while since uh, I've had a chance to address you. We've had a lot going on. We've just completed the Compassion by Command series. Uh, we continue to run the bridge, and a lot of you are participating on that, and that's good to see. We have a Facebook page up uh, that you can access and get updates there. And we have some cool stuff for Padrishners that we'll be rolling out here in the near future. And so be looking for that. But that's not why I'm here to talk with you today. Uh, Woodland Hills Church, like all nonprofits right now, has been feeling the effects of this recession that we've been going through. Uh, we've had to really look at our budget carefully. We've made cuts wherever possible. Our staff has taken uh, voluntary reductions or cut back on hours or cut back on benefits, a multitude of things, trying to preserve the ministries that we're doing um, uh, in the light of this uh, recession that, that we're in. We fund a number of ministries through our central budget, our children's church, uh, our, our pod, podcasting, uh, our worship ministry. Uh, we've got our youth ministry. We have got outreach. We have our benevolent fund uh, through which we are feeding an uh, increasing number of people uh, every day. Uh, we are running a homeless shelter at our church now and a number of things like that. And we don't want to see any of those go. And so we're looking at creative ways of uh, meeting our budget. So we have a unique opportunity here that we're calling 2X. We have a number of uh, faithful donors who have agreed to match funds up to $36,000. So anything that you give between now and December 28th will count double, which is why we're calling it 2X. If you give $25, it will count for $50. So however much or however little you can give, uh, we would very much appreciate it. It's an honor to serve you in the ministry, and we look forward to working with you to build the God's kingdom in the future. God bless.